As we open God's word this morning, let's bow together in a word of prayer. Oh God, indeed, you do wondrously reigneth over all. And we cry out with that song that we want all that is within us to gladly adore you. So Father, I pray that you would continue your work in our hearts to use your word to ignite a flame, a passion for Christ. May you use your word now as we open it and study it together to do that transformation in our hearts that we might be equipped and propelled to obey you happily. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 1800s, once said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. What he meant is that a Christian is either speaking about Christ or he's failing to live according to the faith that he claims to have. And we know that a fundamental reality of human nature is that people talk about what's important to them. Social media illustrates this perfectly. You go onto someone's feed and you see what's important to them. They're going to speak in the posts and images and, and links about what they care about. And in, in this sense, all of us are messengers of something. We go through our day talking about, proclaiming, broadcasting some sort of message. Some people are messengers for their favorite sports team others for their chosen hobby, others for their favorite politician, and others for causes and social action campaigns, and the list could go on. We are all communicators. We are all proclaiming some sort of message. But Christian, I ask you this morning, is your message primarily about Jesus? Do you tell others about Christ? Do you want others to know the one who has changed your life? For all eternity. Peter, the apostle, made it clear in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, that we have been chosen and set aside as God's people for a very important task. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Friends, proclamation is inherent to Christianity. And the people that became Christians in the early centuries, the very first Christians in that first century, lived this out. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul reports that the believers in the church at Thessalonica had proclaimed the message that they had heard. And they made it loud and clear. He says in 1 verse 8, For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. They received the message of the gospel and they couldn't shut up about it. They continued to proclaim it. Now we know that we live in an age in which Christian witness is increasingly silenced. We're feeling the pinch that our message about Jesus is no longer accepted in the public sphere. We're told that our views are no longer American. They don't fit within this new vision of society. 
And yet, friends, this is a time that we need to speak up all the more boldly about who Jesus is and what he has done. The truth must be proclaimed. We, as the church, are messengers for Christ on earth, and we need to carry our message well. Our passage, passage today in Luke chapter 10 will remind us of what it means to be one of Jesus' messengers. And so I invite you to please open up your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 10. And if you don't have your own Bible with you, you can find it in the Bible in the pew rack directly in front of you on page 1031. At the end of Luke chapter 9, a significant turn has taken place in the book of Luke chronicling the ministry of Jesus. He has spent a great amount of his, his ministry proclaiming the gospel in and around Galilee, the northern part of the nation of Israel. But in Luke, at the end of Luke 9, it says in verse 51 that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go towards Jerusalem. He was now committed to go to Jerusalem, recognizing that his time on earth was short. He knew that he would be rejected and nailed upon a cross because he had told his disciples in Luke 9, verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus knew what was coming, but he set his face like flint, determined and steadfast to go to Jerusalem to accomplish that. But as he's making his way to Jerusalem, he is planning to present himself to Israel one last time. He came as Israel's Messiah, as Israel's king, and was calling upon the nation to accept him, to embrace him, to place their faith in him, and to repent of their sins. Remember, his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he goes to Jerusalem to offer himself to the nation one final time and to get that last chance for the nation to respond. Either they would accept him or reject him. Now, of course, we know the final answer. They rejected him. But that needed to be set up. And so in order to present himself before the nation, he wanted a sampling of that nation to be there for that time. And so in order to gather, gather that crowd in Jerusalem, Jesus deploys 72 messengers to pave the way ahead of him and to announce the fact that the king is coming. And so Luke 10 describes this deployment of these messengers. As I said, Jesus had been preaching the kingdom of, the gospel of the kingdom to Israel. He'd been presenting himself through his teaching and also through his miracles, authenticating the fact that he truly was the divine son of God. Then, in chapter 9, we saw that he commissioned his apostles. The twelve became his apostles, and they were sent out. And they were to go and tell the, of the king and of the kingdom which was at hand. And they attested to that reality through the casting out of demons and the healing of sicknesses. And here in chapter 10, Jesus enlists the help of others. He had the twelve, and now here he enlists many more. Now this text describing the commissioning of the 72 goes from verses 1 through 24 in chapter 10. Uh, actually a sizable chunk, actually a greater amount of text given to this than even the commission of the apostles at the beginning of chapter 9. Because of the size of this text, we're only going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 this morning. 
And so follow along as I read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and every place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever you, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now as we approach this passage this morning, there's a note about how we understand it that I want to make a, make a point of here. And that is that this mission that we see here in Luke chapter 10 has both similarities and differences with our mission, the church's mission today. As we compare and contrast this mission that he gives to the 72 and we compare that with the great commission that he gives us as the church today after the cross and resurrection, there is both similarities and differences. The differences for example is that the 72 along with the 12 that we see in chapter 9 are commissioned to go to the house of Israel. They're sent to uh, those within the nation of Israel. And yet we read the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and the church is sent to the nations. They're sent to go to all the world. And so we can't simply flatten out the New Testament and say that, oh, Jesus is sending out messengers here and he sends out messengers in the, in the church and therefore the missions are all the same. There are similarities but there are differences. And so, as we look at this unique mission that Jesus gives in 72, we're also going to see that I believe Luke includes it here and, and devotes so much time to it because he wants the first century church, to whom he was writing initially, and us today by implication, to be able to draw out some principles from this mission of these messengers for our own mission today. We are called to share about Christ. Some of us go overseas and we call them missionaries or ministry partners. But we all have opportunities to speak of Christ. 
We're to be evangelizing, speaking the gospel to our children that they might know the Lord. We tell our coworkers, we tell our neighbors, we tell extended family members about Christ that they might know who he is and the salvation that is found in him. And so we need these reminders to know what it means to be Jesus' messengers. I'm going to draw out five principles on what it means to be Jesus' messengers. Five principles for a Christian's witness that we can apply to our own lives from this text this morning. The first is this, that a Christian witness is all about Jesus. A Christian's witness is all about Jesus. And I get this from verse 1. It says, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. This passage begins by describing the group that Jesus sets aside to go upon this task. Now, depending upon your translation, it either says 72 or it says 70. Some of you have already been scratching your heads as to why your translation says 70. Now, the reason that translations go different ways on this is that there are old, good, reliable manuscripts that attest to both numbers. And so biblical scholars are really left flipping a coin. And some will say, well, lean on the 70 side, and some will lean on the 72 side. But this is what all scholars, depending on where they land, can say. Number one is that a decision is hard to arrive at be based upon the manuscript evidence. And number two, that this discrepancy has no bearing upon the doctrine of the text. 70, 72, the point is that Jesus sent out a lot of messengers. And so this morning I'm going to continue to use 72 because that is what the English Standard Version and their translators have gone with. But again, it could go either way. This commissioning of the 72, as I've said, is similar to the commissioning of the 12 in the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Both groups were sent out two by two. The reason for that is that they would be uh, giving testimony to Jesus and thereby upholding the Old Testament standard of having two or three witnesses. And therefore, as they proclaimed this message, it could be trusted by their audience to know that it wasn't just one person declaring this, it was two, and therefore the standard for witnesses was upheld as well as the, the two could encourage one another in their, ministry, in their ministry. But we also see that both groups perform miracles. They cast out demons. They, they proclaim a message about Jesus. But there's also differences as well between these two. In other words, the 12 apostles didn't suddenly become the 72 apostles or 70 apostles. The 12 particularly are set aside as named apostles. It says in chapter 9 that he, he set them aside as apostles. And as we know, they carry that title even post-cross and resurrection of Jesus. They are forever known in Christian history as the 12 apostles. The 72 here are not named apostles, even though they are commissioned in a similar way. But they don't seem to hold any sort of enduring office that continued in Jesus' ministry plan even for the church. This is a unique ministry for a short time. In addition, another difference as we've seen between the two ministries is that the 12 were sent to the villages of Galilee. This was still in the, the time of the great Galilean ministry of Jesus, and he just sent them out. But here, the 72 are sent to specific villages. Jesus says to go to the places that he himself was about to go. I guess that there was no doubt some sort of list 
some sort of villages that Jesus knew he was going to go to, and he told them to go to those himself, themselves. And so there's a certain path that he was going to follow. In any case, we see here in verse 1 that Jesus is expanding the pool of ministry helpers. He's pulling in more people to get this, get this message out. The time is getting short. He recognizes his ministry is coming to an end, and he wants to continue to proclaim his gospel of the kingdom. And so the, the 72 here we see from verse 1 is that they're commissioned by Jesus, and they're sent out to pro proclaim a message about Jesus. And so therefore, we, we see that everything in their miss mission was about the Lord. They, these 72 wouldn't have any ministry. They wouldn't have a mission. They wouldn't have a task if it wasn't for Jesus. In fact, they wouldn't have anything to offer if it wasn't for the Lord. Their ministry was all about Jesus. And this, I believe, is what we can draw out from this text as well. Is that our mission and ministry today is all about the Lord. Our lives and our witness as Christians is all about Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, I want us to consider the ways in which your life and your ministry is all about Jesus. The scriptures are, are, are clear on this. First is that you live because of Christ. Your heart's beating right now and you're breathing because of Jesus. John 1 verse 3 said, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That means you were made by Christ. It also means your life is sustained and upheld by Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. This universe continues to be sustained each and every second by the word of Christ. And so your life is sustained and upheld by Christ as well. But more than just our physical life, right? We know that we're saved because of his love and sacrifice. Again, further talking about how your life is, is all about Jesus, you were saved because of his love and sacrifice. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, a, a, a representative verse which, which we could repeat over and over again, but he sa it says Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This is at the core of the gospel, is it not? That Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Romans 5, verse 8. God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Believer, Jesus has created you, sustains you, and saved you by his love and sacrifice. But more than that, you're being transformed into his character. Your character is predestined to be conformed to Christ. Yes, you are loved and saved by Christ now, but, but you're being transformed, you're being chiseled into the image of Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You were made by Christ, you're sustained by Christ, you're saved by Christ, and you're going to look like Christ. God is making you to look like Christ. And so, Christ is also the one who's commissioned us to go. Again, how our lives and ministry is defined by Jesus, he's commissioned us to go with the gospel and he's promised to be with us the whole way. 
Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Lord remains with us, his church, as we accomplish the task that he's given us to do. And finally, there's no other person worth proclaiming. We go with the message of Jesus because of the commission of Jesus and there's no one else worth proclaiming. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This world has no other saving message, no other saving person but Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. We've got to declare that. As I shared with you earlier, 1 Peter 2, verse 9, we were chosen to declare the excellencies, not just the character traits of Jesus, but the excellencies of Jesus. We're to look into and peer into how excellent Jesus is so that our heart is so enraptured with how excellent he is so that we proclaim it, and proclaim him. So here's a principle that we must remember. If we lose sight of Christ, we will stop speaking of Christ. If we lose sight of Christ, we will stop speaking of him. And so we must continue to look into him. We must continue to proclaim the gospel to ourselves every day, reminding ourselves of who he is, of what he's done, so that we will be more prepared to tell other sinners how they might be saved from Christ, by Christ. So this passage, I believe, even from the first verse, reminds us that our lives and our ministry, our witness is all about Jesus from beginning to end. But secondly, this passage reminds us that our witness is driven by prayer. Our witness in this world is driven by prayer. Look at verse 2 with me. And he, Jesus, the Lord, said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Here in verse 2, Jesus begins his exhortation to the 72. And he begins by using the analogy of a harvest. A harvest referring to people, specifically to people who belong to the Lord, but yet have not yet been reaped, have not yet been collected or brought in. Therefore, these are the elect of God, chosen by him, but have not yet been reaped. And so the harvest are people who have been chosen by God for salvation and yet, in practical terms, have not yet confessed faith in Jesus. Jesus says that this harvest is plentiful. He knows that there are many out there. He's not just guessing that there are a bunch of people out there who God has chosen. He knows that there are people out there whom God has chosen. The problem, you know, great, the harvest is plentiful. The problem, though, he says, the laborers are few. Laborers here are disciples of Jesus who are involved in the reaping, involved in the collecting and the bringing in. And so Jesus saw that there were many people who were ripe to be saved, but the number of people to tell them about Jesus were few. And so this prompts Jesus to instruct the 72 to pray. He says, pray earnestly, therefore, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
Now, you might think Jesus would encourage them, so therefore, get out there. And he's going to give that instruction he's in the next verse. He's going to say, go. But before they go, or I should say, overarching, the umbrella reality of while they're going is that they should be praying. They should pray to God. A God who they aren't just hoping can do something, but notice how God is defined here in verse 2. He's the Lord of the harvest. He's the God of the harvest. Jesus instructs them that they are to plead with God to send out laborers. So practically, the way this would work is that they would go, march out two by two down their path, and as they're walking along the path, they're also to be praying and pleading with God. They have an urgency and a, and a mission to accomplish, so they're out, they're going, and yet they're also praying and pleading as they go. That God would collect the harvest and would, would, would save, send out more laborers. And so I believe there's two important observations here from this verse for us. First, as I've already alluded to, is that God is sovereign over the harvest, for he is the Lord of it. He is sovereign over the harvest. He knows who are his and who are in the harvest. He is the one who collects the harvest and turns them into laborers. He's the one who sends laborers out to collect the harvest. He's the one that raises up and sends. And this is why we pray, because he's in control of all of it. Friends, if God, the Lord, was not in control of it all, why would we pray to him? But he's sovereign, and he's in control, and he's all-powerful, and he does what he wants. And so we pray that he would convert sinners and send them out. But the second observation I glean from commentator Arlensky, and he says, he says this, he says, Our prayers... Do not save the harvest or a part of it. Our prayers join God's concern for the harvest. Make us one mind, heart, and will with him, partners of Jesus himself. As we pray this prayer, that God would send out more laborers into the harvest, our hearts become burdened with the same burden that God has, the same burden that Christ has. God enables us to participate through our prayers and through our proclamation. And so I believe here from this verse we can see our second principle that we can draw out for our witness today and that is that we are to be driven by prayer in our witness. We must recognize that while we have a task to do, God is the one who determines the fruit of that task. We're privileged to join in the work of God's saving of sinners. We proclaim a message to lost and dying souls. We pray that God would send out laborers into the harvest, but ultimately he's the one who's sovereign over their salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We need God if there's going to be any fruit from our labor. But take note, friends, that God doesn't need us. God is Lord of the harvest and he can do what he wants. And so, Believer, we must pray that God would raise up more laborers and send them out into the harvest. And I believe that one of the results of such a prayer is that we'll engage us and, and, and create a burden in our hearts for more evangelism and work of mission as well as disciple making and training. Because as we pray that God would send out more laborers, we 
partake in that same task of proclaiming to the lost and of raising up laborers that they might be equipped to proclaim this message. His burdens become our burdens. His concerns become our concerns. So there indeed is work to be done. But we must be driven by prayer. As the 72 go out on the path and proclaim a message, but also pray and plead to the Lord as they go, so us, we go out in obedience. We proclaim in obedience, but we pray and beg and plead the Lord to bless such efforts and send out more. Well, verse 3 brings us to our third third principle of a Christian's witness that I believe we can draw from this text. And the third principle that we see in this text is that a Christian's witness is dependent on God. Is dependent on God. As I noted, look at verse 3. He says, go. Go your way. He, it's a command to, to launch out. He's sending them out on their mission, on the road. In other words, they, he says, don't be confused. You're not supposed to spend all your time praying, although I did tell you to do that. But there needs to be movement here. There needs to be action. But as they go, Jesus wants them to be dependent upon God for two things. For protection and for provision. For protection and for provision. Look first at protection in verse 3. He says, Go your way, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. He says, Behold. This is a textual a way of getting someone's attention. Kind of like saying, hey, listen up. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now this is certainly a warning. All right, good to note, there are wolves, right? They are taking a warning with them to know what they're going to face as they're out there on the road. But I believe it's more than that. In other words, Jesus is not just saying, hey, I'm sending you out. Good luck. I hope you survive. Okay? I believe there's more that he's trying to say here. The word to send out here is apostello, which is related, you can even hear in that, to the word apostle. Apostello. It's a word signifying the commissioning action of Jesus. He is the official sender sending these people as his representatives. And because he's the sender... These men must trust Jesus to protect them on their mission. And so Jesus, instead of saying, good luck, I hope you survive, he's saying, I am sending you, so trust me. I am sending you in the midst of wolves, but I know what I'm doing, trust me. The Old Testament spoke of God's people as lambs or a flock of sheep, and God is also revealed to be a shepherd. You know the familiar passage in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is the shepherd. In another passage, Isaiah 40 verse 11, says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. And so Jesus is saying, you can trust me, I'm the shepherd who is sending out his sheep even though there's wolves about. These 72 can know that the shepherd knows what he's doing. 
Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that God keeps wolves from hurting his lambs, but it does mean that Jesus would not abandon them because they were carrying out his mission. Now, today, as we carry out Christ in this present evil age, we know that we are Christ's sheep and the people of his pasture. John chapter 10, Jesus says that he is the good shepherd. And so we're told in Hebrews 13 verse 5 that he will never leave us or forsake us. And so as we go out, even as we read the Great Commission, right, he says, I am with you to the end of the age. He will never leave us or forsake us. Christ is with us as his representatives here on earth. The author of Hebrews, after stating that truth, says this in verse 6. Therefore, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? When we know that Christ is with us, we have a confidence and ability to stand in the face of opposition because Jesus is with us. He is our helper and we do not need to fear what man can do to us. Now, the message of the New Testament is that if we live faithfully for Jesus, we will experience persecution and suffering. The wolves do attack, attack, and they do inflict casualties. But in the midst of our task to make disciples by winning souls and teaching the Bible, we must remember that Jesus is with us and will protect us eternally. So, we can see that Jesus' messengers are to be dependent on God for protection, but secondly, for provision. Look at verse 4. He says, carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. They're not to take anything extra with them. That's the point of this. Listen, just leave with a closer on your back. Get going. Get out there on the road. I don't want you to go home and pack. I don't want you to dally. This is, there's urgency to this message. I want you to go. They're not to take an extra money bag because they're not going to need it. God's going to provide. They don't need to take a knapsack for food or for extra clothes. God's going to provide. They don't need to take extra sandals. I believe there's, I don't believe he's calling them to go barefoot. I think he's saying, don't take extra sandals. God will provide. And then the last instruction, greet no one on the road, is not so much maybe about God's provision, but more emphasizing the urgency. Ancient greetings upon the road were often elaborate and could take time and then get pulled into conversation that would delay these messengers. And so Jesus is saying, listen, don't get tied up into these, these elaborate greetings, but continue on in the task to get to the towns, or to get to these towns and proclaim it in the villages. They must make haste. And so these men got the picture. They're to go, not to worry about their provision, and know that God would take care of them. They were dependent on God. Now, our circumstances are not quite the same. We are called to go and proclaim the gospel, but we have no parallel commands for us to not prepare, to not pack, or any, any such things. But the need is still the same for us to trust God for our needs. God uses means, of course, our occupations, our labor, our work, to provide food and clothing and other necessities. But here's the point. We shouldn't trust ourselves for those things. Trust our brains or our brawn, our ability to work, to provide for these things. We know all of that comes from the hand of a loving Father. And so we, we work and we do these things dependently upon the Lord and we do them with a, with a focus upon the mission that Christ has given us. 
We don't live as unbelievers do that are set to live and, and stay and root in this world. We live as sojourners. We live as pilgrims that this is not our home and we are looking to a heavenly city. And so we care, we, we, we trust God as we go through this world. Now listen, as we're pilgrims passing through this world, we live between two realities. One is that there's a gospel urgency like these messengers. Right? Time is short. Death, hell, and heaven are real. As much as our world wants to scoff at the reality of an eternal punishment and eternal life in heaven, it is real. The, gospel, the, the scriptures are very clear on that. And people are dying in their sins. The Lord could return at any moment. And therefore, there is an urgency that should drive us, that we should feel that hand upon our back each and every day. But on the other hand, we can't live our lives at level 10. The Christian life is not meant to be a sprint every single day. We're living a marathon. We're, we, we've got to pace ourselves over the course of our lives. And so we plod in our lives, one foot in front of the other, faithful to Christ today, faithful to Christ today, faithful to Christ today. We don't want to be burn out and flame out. We want to be faithful and consistent over the course of our lives. We're to be the tortoise, not the hare. But there's dangers if we focus on one over the other, right? If, it's, if we just focus on the urgency, then we're going to burn out emotionally and spiritually and physically. But if we just factor on the marathon and the plotting, we can grow complacent and we lose the urgency and we settle in when we shouldn't be. And so we need God's grace to help us to live between these two realities as we propel the mission forward and seek to be faithful to Christ today and know that God will provide for us. Well, verse 5 brings us to the fourth principle I believe we can glean from this passage. The fourth principle is that a Christian's witness is sometimes received to great blessing. Our witness is sometimes received to great blessing. Jesus prepares his messengers for two different responses. One of acceptance and one of rejection. Verses 5 through 9 talked about the acceptance. Verses 10 and following speak of the rejection. Verse 5, he says, Whatever house you enter, say peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. And if not, it will return to you. So Jesus gets specific and precise. He says, you walk into a house, and once you're in one of these towns or villages, and you pronounce peace upon this place. And he says, if a, uh, if a son of peace is there, then the peace will rest upon him. This this declaration as a benediction, a, 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 a qu somewhat equivalent to God be with you. It was a declaration of, of blessing. And Jesus says that if a son of peace is there, that peace will stay. A son of peace is merely a Hebraic way to say uh, someone who is of peace, a person of peace, which in this context refers to one who believes in Jesus and accepts him. He accepts, accepts the message of Jesus and therefore accepts the messengers of Jesus. If they warmly receive that message, then peace will come to stay at that house. There will be harmony, a state of harmony for those who follow Jesus. But if there's not a son of peace, if they don't accept it, then it will go back to them. And this may not seem like a big deal. It's kind of like a little greeting thing. And it either goes and lands or it bounces back. It's, 
is it, is, is it sticking or is it boomeranging, you know? And you kind of go, okay, and move on from there. But the reality of this passage, as we'll see later, is that there are severe consequences for what someone does with this message. When these messengers showed up, if they either accepted or rejected these messengers, there was, there was serious consequences. Now verses 7 and 8 instruct these disciples to be content with what the hosts provide for them. It says, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. These messengers were not to roll into a town and pronounce peace and go, okay, great. And they sit down and they're like, ooh, bread and water, huh? Well, you know, God bless you. Move on. I'm going to go see if they got some lamb over here and see if they got some meat and maybe some wine and some better accommodations. No, Jesus says, Wherever you go and whatever they provide, be content with that. Eat what they provide. Eat what they put before you. He says at the end of verse 8. These disciples are not on some sort of fancy, uh, posh mission where they can, they can take in whatever they want to please their flesh. They are, there's an urgency to this, and so they must land in the first house that accepts them. They must be content that this is what God has provided for them. Remember, Jesus said that they were to trust God. Well, God is providing for them through even maybe simple means. As a side note, verse 7 says, look at, in the middle of verse 7, it says, for the laborer deserves his wages. And this is just a side apologetic point for the New Testament. This verse is quoted in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, alongside a verse from Deuteronomy. Paul quotes Deuteronomy and he quotes Luke. And he says, for the scriptures say. He sees both the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, and this New Testament writing, Luke, as scripture, as divinely inspired. In other words, this is a New Testament writing that is on equal par with the Old Testament. And an indication even from within scripture that they saw these writings as authoritative and divinely inspired. But look, look at verse 9. Look at what's to characterize their mission here in these cities that accept them. It says, Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. And so they are to continue the blessing. They're to begin healing the people that are there. Extending that generosity of Christ to the people in that house. And they're to tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. This healing is to confirm their message that truly they are representatives of Jesus. And this declaration, the kingdom of God has come near to you, is in line with what we have seen from all those leading up to this point of New Testament history. John the Baptist stepped on the scene and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or it's near. Jesus continued that same message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or near. And now here the 72 are proclaiming that same message, the kingdom of God is near. In other words, the kingdom, the messianic kingdom of Old Testament prophecy would arrive if Israel as a nation would submit to and believe in Jesus as the king. So there's several aspects in these verses that are unique to this first century context, unique to this mission, unique to the instruction that Jesus gave them. But I believe what we can pull out for ourselves today is that there, our message today, likewise, will have sometimes is received to great blessing. Sometimes people respond positively to the gospel. 
We proclaim the message of Jesus and we see that they are ready. Their hearts are prepared and they receive that gospel. They repent and believe in Christ. These are people that the Lord of the harvest has prepared. They are his elect. And as we're going to see, not everyone responds this way, but we can be encouraged in our evangelism efforts that God will open the hearts of those who are truly his. Remember the ministry of Paul in Philippi. He goes there and eventually he's going to be kicked out of town. The town doesn't want him and they, and, and they, and they, they, they reject him and his message about Jesus. But as he gets there, he goes to a place outside the city and he talks to some women there and a, it says of a woman named Lydia that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul in Acts chapter 16. This is what we know the Lord can do in any time, in any place. He can open the hearts of dead sinners. We know that God will save some. And it's for this reason that we share the message of Christ. It's for this reason that we preach the gospel. And we go out because we know the Lord has, knows who are his, and he will use his people to gather in the harvest. But finally this morning, I want to draw out the fifth and final principle for our Christian witness from this text. And that is that the Christian witness is sometimes rejected to great judgment. Christian message is sometimes rejected to great judgment. Rejection of Christ today can be expected just as it could be expected for these 72 messengers. He says in verse 10, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, Go into the streets and give them a message. In other words, they could expect that there were going to be towns that would not receive them. And if that's the case, they're to go into the city square, they're to make a, a, a spectacle of themselves to get everyone's attention. And it says, go into the streets and say, verse 11, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. This idea of wiping off the dust of their feet is a Jewish way to show disapproval. And it communicated that they were done with that town. They're leaving it behind because that town had no place for Christ. And we see that Paul and Barnabas do the same thing in the book of Acts, in Acts 13, verse 51. They show God's judgment upon that place by shaking off the dust of their feet. But then they declare... Verse 11, nevertheless know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Again, declaring the, the king is coming. The king is here if you would but accept him. He's come, it's come near to you. But for these people, the fact that the kingdom of God is near is not good news. Because for those who reject Christ, it means only one thing, and that is judgment. That is that they are on the outside. And so this prompts Jesus to speak of judgment. Notice what he says in verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. This would have been absolutely shocking to these Jewish men to hear this. That some town of Israel, some town of God's chosen people, would experience greater judgment than Sodom. Sodom, along with Gomorrah, was, they were the epitome of wickedness in the Old Testament, often compared to the account of 
those cities are in Genesis 18, and they were burned up by fire coming down from heaven because of their sin. But what Jesus says here is that that judgment that they received that shows how wicked that they were, that wasn't the end of the story. That's not the full judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah is going to receive. Because Sodom and Gomorrah, the residents there, need to stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. And Jesus, they're going to receive a ju judgment. But Jesus says that the towns that reject Christ and the gospel message of these messengers are going to receive a worse judgment on that judgment day than Sodom. And for as shocking as that is, Jesus goes on to press the point by naming three cities. Three other cities that are, are offenders of, in the same way. He goes, he breaks out into a woe, into a declaration of, of sadness and judgment. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And then verse 15, and you, Capernaum. All these cities were on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum and Bethsaida were on the lake. Chorazin was a few miles inland. But the reason they're called out here is that they were the scene of some of Christ's mighty works. They saw the Lord himself, the Lord, the Son of God, walked in their midst and brought about kingdom powers. And yet there was no widespread revival. There was no widespread turning to him and embracing of him, of the king. Oh, sure, there were some that believed and crowds that were fascinated with him and maybe tolerated him, but they didn't believe in him and give their lives to him. Because fascination and toleration is not belief. Jesus calls for total commitment. Remember, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He wants all of us. But here, Jesus says, compares these cities, Chorazin and Bethsaida, to Tyre and Sidon. Again, two disobedient, sinful, Gentile cities, and says that it will be more bearable for them than for these cities of Galilee. Here, showing that there are different levels of punishment, different degrees of hell that are that are there. We don't know who exactly falls into what categories of hell and what categories of judgment, but it's clear in the mind of God that there are different categories. And I believe the principle is this, that the degree of punishment is based upon the knowledge or revelation that they've received. The greater the knowledge, the greater the revelation, the greater the punishment. And that's why Jesus singles out Capernaum as his final city. Verse 15. And you, Capernaum, you will, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. They thought they were so special. Capernaum was Jesus' chosen city. He had brought his ministry there as, his ca as capital of his campaign. But they had exalted themselves and hadn't truly believed, and therefore they would be brought down to Hades, otherwise known as hell or the place of torment. And so, I believe that there are several principles that we can draw from these passages about judgment for us today. The first is that judgment is real. Judgment is real. And folks, it awaits all those who reject Christ. Again, this is not a popular doctrine today. It's scoffed at or it's hated. But note this, God is not 
mocked. He will have the final say because he is Lord. But today is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation, the chance to turn and to believe in Jesus and to be saved from this wrath that is to come. We must have solidified in our hearts that judgment in hell is a real thing in a real place and it is nothing to tamper with. As I said, I think the sec second principle is that there are degrees of hell. The more we know, the more we've heard, the more accountable we are. And this is scary for all of us who have sat under sermon after sermon. For all of you who have grown up in the church, teenagers who have heard from your parents, from your youth, who have heard, sat under sermon after sermon. I don't say it lightly, but there's great accountability for you because you know the truth. You have heard it time and time again. Do not spurn the kindness of God that he continues to give you day after day to turn to him. But know that if you harden your heart and you reject him, that at some level there is greater punishment for you because of what you know. The third principle we can draw from these verses for us today is that our evangelism must include a declaration of judgment. We cannot hide this fact as we share the message of Jesus. Oh, sure, it might make people feel bad. But friends, this is the truth, and this is where they are headed. They are not just looking to upgrade their options, and they'll just stick with the, what they have now. No, if they reject Christ, there are eternal consequences. And so we must share it. If we love them, we must tell them of what is coming. Now, how we bring it up with, with friends, with family members, when we bring it up, the tone that we bring it up, all of that are matters of wisdom, but we cannot neglect the reality of hell and punishment. And so the fourth principle that we can draw from these verses today is that the greatest news in the world will be rejected by some. It's just a matter of fact. It was true throughout the Old Testament. The prophets experienced this as they pleaded with Israel and yet it was rejected. The apostles, Jesus, we see it throughout church history. There are many who reject the gospel. And so we can experience and expect the same kind of rejection. But notice what Jesus says in verse 16, the last verse of our passage. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. There's a, there's a path of messenger here. That for those who represent Jesus, you represent him. And so the rejection of us is not rejection of us ultimately. It's rejection of Christ. And ultimately, as he says, it's rejection of the Father. And it's to, because it's to the Father and the Son that they must give an account. And so friends, Christianity is a faith that requires proclamation. Again, it's the best news in the world. We know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We know the one who has given himself upon the cross that sinners might be saved. And yet we know the one who will one day judge the living and the dead. And this is the message that we must proclaim.
May we not grow cold in our passion for Christ and for sharing this to the world. May we endeavor to make disciples, continue to bring in the harvest. But we need to be faithful to open our mouths and to speak. May the Spirit work through our weakness and equip us to do this special and yet risky task for his name's sake. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word that reminds us of the task that we have to proclaim Christ to a lost and dying world. Oh Lord, I pray that you would keep us bold. That we would be strong and courageous. That the, the book of the law would not depart from our hearts and our mouths. That we would remain faithful to Christ as we proclaim him in this age. We thank you that you have given your spirit and you've given us your promise that you will be with us to the end of the age. You will not leave us or forsake us. Oh God, may that strengthen our hearts today, strengthen our hearts this week. And I pray that you give us a love and a compassion for those who are all around us who do not have life, that do not have hope. And may you help us to pursue them for your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.